Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 17 as you're turning there. I was reading a story this week of a woman who was babysitting her nephew. Her nephew was about two or three years old, and it was time to go to bed. And being that it was not his parents, you know how that works. He thought for sure he could convince his aunt to let him stay up a little later. When he realized that she wasn't going to budge, he said to her this, My eyes have water when you want me to sleep, and I don't want to. I think that's a descriptive way to explain crying. But you know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes him or her cry. Some people cry over lost possessions. Some people cry over relationships that were lost. Some cry over fear. I remember uh, a young man in our youth group a few years ago, we were going to youth camp and it literally cried, he did, because he thought there was a spider uh, in the sheets where he was getting ready uh, to place his head. People cry when they're under pressure. People cry with joy. You know, there's a writer for Lifestyle, a publication for women that listed seven reasons people cry. Loneliness, fear, love, hate, frustration, death, and joy. Here in Philippians chapter 3, and what we'll read in just a moment, Paul writes this. He says, I've often told you, and now again I say with tears. What was it that drove Paul, a strong man, a bold man, a confrontational man, to tears? Well, of the seven things, as I uh, went through that list, two came to mind. One was love. He Loved the church at Philippi. We're going to see uh, descriptive terms. He called him my joy, my crown in chapter 4 and verse 1. But it, it wasn't just love, but it also was fear. And, and maybe a better term would be concern. Paul was concerned for the church at Philippi because it was going to be threatened, and it was being threatened by false teachers. With that in mind, let's read Philippians 3 and verse 17. Paul writes, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you in prayer today, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Lord, this day that you would open our eyes to the truth of it. Lord, to our glorious future, but also, Lord, in the here and now, the things that might threaten, Lord, our advancement and the advancement of this church, Lord, in its kingdom work. We pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You know, Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, and in each of these, there seemed to be almost a recurring theme, or at least in very many of them. On Sunday evenings, we've been studying the book of Titus, and a main focus of Paul in that epistle was false teaching. In fact, we read in, in the beginning of that uh, tiny epistle how Paul um, mandated that Titus structure the church in such a way to insulate itself uh, from the threat of false teachers. So we see in Crete uh, that was a threat, but also in Galatians. Paul writes near the beginning of the book of Galatians, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than that which I have preached, let that one be accursed. And he follows through that by uh, confronting the challenge that many Judaizers were placing uh, against the church there. What about 2 Timothy? He warned of those who believed and asserted that the resurrection had already come. 2 Thessalonians, he warns of the false Christ who is to come. Colossians, he warns of the false teaching of those who would worship angels. I think you get the point that in almost every letter Paul was writing, he felt an urgency to address the threat of false teaching. I think there's much that we can gain from this truth, and it is this, that we too need to be alert. Our heads need to be on a swivel. We need to be aware of doctrines and teachings that contradict the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in Philippians, Paul is warning the church at Philippi. He uses picturesque language to describe these individuals who might infiltrate the church and try to redirect the church toward false doctrine. He follows that, though, with a positive message of telling the church there to remember its citizenship and to remember where it's he heading, its heavenly calling, its calling to be with the Lord. And then in chapter 4 in verse 1, we see he sort of brings this section to a close by emphasizing that the church stand firm. I want to look at each of these truths today. And first, I, I want you to note with me the threat that spiritual imposters brought to the church at Philippi. You know, I was thinking we might call these people false teachers, and rightly so, but they were also people who were living falsely. In fact, we see uh, the description of that here in our text in verses 18 and 19. And these people who sought to redirect the church in a wrong direction, in a false direction, had wrong goals, wrong motives. They were seeking to influence Paul's reading. The characteristics of these persons are found in verses 18 and 19. And to be honest, there is some debate as to whom uh, these people were. Some people would say they are Jewish legalists. For instance, these would be persons who were trying to reintroduce the law, the Old Testament law, as essential to salvation. That's a false teaching. In fact, some would argue that uh, their God is their stomach, as they're described here uh, in verse 19. Their glory is in their shame would point to this group's adherence 
to this ceremonial law. In other words, uh, their God is their stomach. They were caught up on what to eat and what not to eat. Their glory is their shame, circumcision, which was considered to be meritorious by these people to get eternal life. Their shame would be the private part of the body. They were glorying in the circumcision. So it may have been Jewish legalists. Some people say, no, it, it may well have been Greek libertinists. And by that, libertine had no law at all. So you see the opposite extreme. They would say, do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. They would say, well, the stomach just, just meets your own cravings, your own desires. Their glory was in their shame. Now, as I have studied it personally, if within the context of Philippians 3, I believe it's the former group that's being addressed here, Jewish legalists. But it really does not matter which group it was because both groups are described as far as they are in contrast. One saying, you must follow this letter to get approval. The other saying, do whatever you want. Both of them were man-made religions. And any man-made religion is a threat to Christianity. And as believers and as a group of believers, we're to break from, we're to separate ourselves from such religion. This past week, I was listening to a radio station in Lynchburg as I was traveling into the city, and I heard something very unusual. Christmas music was being played in April, and it struck me, and they said, it's your 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week Christmas music. And, and as I was thinking about that, I remember traveling through Richmond and hearing the same thing as I was scaling through the radio stations. There was a separate station in Richmond that was doing the same thing in the middle of February. Well, you know what that did? That piqued my curiosity. And David Lane probably knows where I'm going with this because there's a strategy in radio called this, radio stunting. And in radio stunning, what will happen is when a radio station is purchased by a new owner, in order to transition into a new format, often they will play Christmas music for a period of two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months, maybe as short as a day. And there are many reasons why it happens. Basically, the station is in transition and it buys some time. But one other person gave an interesting perspective on why radio stunning is done. And it's this, to drive away the old listeners. Because the format was going to be different. Imagine if you're playing classic rock and it's going to be transitioning into um, southern gospel. You know, the group that are the former listeners, they're not going to have any identity with that. So you might as well cut the ties by having this interim period to sort of move them out of the way. And eventually they'll turn the station away. And then the, tr the, the radio station can begin anew without all of the negative calls that would happen when you're trying the grand opening. I was thinking about radio stunting. And I thought about that in sort of a parallel way to the church. When the church embraces the true doctrine, doctrine of Christ, it must cut itself totally from any type of false teaching, anything that would affect um, the church. And it's true in our own lives. When we accept Christ, we have a new identity in Christ, and we need to totally cut ties away from the old influences. And so we see here a description of these people who were maybe, if they were Jews, 
part of the old way of life for who were now Jewish Christians. Notice how they're described at the end of verse 18. They were enemies of the cross of Christ. They were emphasizing things like the Jewish law, circumcision, the ceremonial law, the days that must be observed. And they said, if you keep all of these things, God must grant you eternal life. That's not true. In fact, it totally contradicts the message of the gospel that we're sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God. There's no merit we bring. So anyone who says what you do merits God's favor, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is destruction. Sometimes it may sound very good, but it's wrong. Their God is their stomach. We've already looked at that. It may be an emphasis on uh, legalism of you must follow these particular diets. Or in contrast, it may be uh, that you can just be led by your cravings and do whatever you want. Their glory is in their shame. The things that they're placing their emphasis on, uh, not only are they worthless, but they actually are shameful. And then there's a final description. They are focused on earthly things, temporal things. There's nothing wrong with the temporal things of this world, but we're not to center our lives around the things that will pass. And so as we look at all of these things, what Paul is saying to the church there is beware of the threat of individuals who will try to move your focus away from the true gospel of Christ. We follow that with God's promise to the believers. We see that in verses 20 and 21. Not all is really grave in this passage. In fact, we see words of hope here in verses 20 and 21. Look with me at what it says. But our citizenship is in heaven. We see a, an adversative there. We see a conjunction. We see a change. These people, they're focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So lest the church there be distracted by this group of individuals, lest they be focused on temporal things, Paul is reminding them of two things. First, their identity, and then their destiny. Their identity is this. They were citizens of heaven. They were part of the commonwealth of heaven. Peter writes elsewhere that as believers, we're aliens and strangers. We're in the world, but not of the world. Paul calls us, as we looked at our Sunday school lesson last week, ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a citizen of one country who represents that home country in a country in which he is currently living. The point is this, as Christians, we live in this world. But we're not of this world. We live in this world, but we live with a view toward heaven. As I look out here, some of you I know have been on short-term mission trips overseas, and you can identify with where I'm going. I love um, these countries that I've had a, a privilege of, of visiting. And, and I, I get excited when I go there, but I'll be honest, about two days 
before we start to leave if it's a week and a half or two week trip and, and sort of the ministry is sort of coming to a close I start to have a yearning to get home the older I get the more I like my bed and, and I'm ready and I can't wait to get on that plane and see Karen and see the kids as much as I've loved being in that foreign country it's not home and so as we look at this, believer, your citizenship is in heaven. Do you realize your home you've not been to yet? And that's one of the mysteries of Christianity, one of the beautiful mysteries, that we're citizens in heaven. You know, I was thinking about that. The people who came out of the Exodus, God had a place for them that was to be their home. It was the promised land. And, and, of course, they disobeyed, and there were 40 years they were wandering in the wilderness. Do you realize that during that time, God didn't have them build a temple? He had them have a tabernacle so it could be picked up and moved. It was temporal. It was not. And, and they didn't build homes in the wilderness. It would have been foolish to have built homes in the wilderness if their destination was to be the promised land. It was just a temporal abode. This life in which we're living is just a temporal place for us our home is in heaven and so notice what he says in verse 21 that that we're waiting at the end of verse 20 for a savior from there the lord jesus christ he's coming back for his church in the rapture he's going to take the church up to be with him the scripture tells us in first thessalonians that we'll be caught up in the air it doesn't say that Jesus is going to plant his foot on the ground and take his believers, but it says the dead in Christ will rise to him and that those who are alive will be caught up into the air. And then after the period of the tribulation, those individuals who are in Christ will come back with him in a victorious second coming. The point of it is this. Jesus Christ is coming his church and he'll take these bodies it says in verse 21 and transform them from the perishable things that they are to imperishable he'll clothe us with a heavenly body with such an understanding you can see the urgency that paul has here he, he's saying why get caught up in the temporal things why get caught up in in rules why get caught up in all of that we're heading somewhere we're not to be distracted from where we're heading and that leads to a third point we see a command for believers in chapter 4 and verse 1 you know originally these were written in the format of a letter and the reason you have chapter and verse is it makes referencing better the the chapters and verses were added later to help us to study scripture so often we think well at the end of chapter three that's the end of that thought we'll begin another section but sometimes it helps us in our bibles that we see it divided out and the way my bible is and maybe yours is chapter four and verse one is included as part of chapter three if there's a, a subheading you'll see it after verse one and this tells us that what he is saying here is related or most people would interpret to be related to what he has already said what has he already said beware of the false teachers beware of those who are focused on temporal things on the things that pass the stomachs their earthly things like that focus on your citizenship in heaven and the fact that christ is coming back for you and then he gives a command stand firm 
You know, when I was young, there were so many toys. That I grew up in a time of great toys, G.I. Joes, Rock'em Sock'em robots, uh, matchbox cars, all of those things. But I was thinking this week, uh, there was a silly toy that was created when I was a child, probably when I was about six years old in 1971, called Weeblos. You probably remember them. They were egg-shaped, they were little characters, and they were heavily weighted at the base. And, and the way they were designed is that uh, gravity would always pull it down where it would be bottom sitting down and top sitting up. You probably remember uh, the saying that promoted the toy. It said, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. It wouldn't matter if you threw it across the yard, if the wind began to blow it, if things began to tear into it, it might be shaken, but always its base was going to stay intact. Paul is saying here to the church, stand firm. Keep your base solid. And this is, is important words, these are, in the days in which we live, when so much around us seems to be in disarray, when seems to be chaotic, when there are concerns, when things are up, when things are down, when day by day things need are, are changing, we need to stand firm in the faith. In fact, in verse 1, that word stand firm is written in the present tense in the Greek, which literally means keep standing firm. Don't give ground. It's applied here to Roman soldiers who without fear would stand their ground no matter what came against them. They would not retreat in fear or in doubt. And spiritually speaking, no matter what faces us, no matter what threats, whether it be false teaching, adversity, we need to stand firm. And we need to understand something very important here. Paul is not saying here that we can lose our salvation. That would contradict what Scripture teaches. If you're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, John 10, 29, Jesus says, I keep them in my hands and no one shall snatch them out of me. You don't maintain your salvation. Jesus Christ keeps your salvation. Will you say, why is he emphasizing standing firm? Because of this. While an individual cannot lose his or her salvation, he or she can lose confidence in that salvation, can lose a fellowship with God, can lose effectiveness for the kingdom if he or she is distracted. And more than that, I think what Paul was concerned here in the context of the church is they could lose a generation. If they allowed false teaching to come in, they themselves might be genuinely saved. But the next generation in Philippi that would come along behind would not have the pure gospel to hold on to. And so we must stand firm in the true gospel, stand firm in our hope. Why is that? Because our faith will be challenged. Your faith will be challenged. And you need to stand firm. You need to know what you believe and stand firm in those beliefs that are true to the Bible. Well, how will we stand firm? First is we must stay in the Bible, Christians. Stay in the Word of God every day. Make it a part of your daily discipline. Pray, God, speak to me through your Word. Maybe take a little epistle. Maybe go buy a $5 commentary 
in, in, in Lynchburg or something and just say, I, w- I want to study this. I want to know this. I want to apply it to my, li- to my life. You know, when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He, he fought that temptation with the word of God. The word of God was in his mind and in his heart. But not only that, stay in the fellowship. You can't stand alone. Peter learned it, didn't he? When he got away from the Lord uh, and denied the Lord right before Jesus was crucified. We need to stay in the fellowship. Look again at what he says in verse 17. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. That family term, that fellowship term. What he's saying is mimic me. That word in the Greek is the word from which we get our English mimic and so what he's saying is i want you to be attached to me i want you to follow me and notice what else he says not only that but he follows that by saying and pay careful attention that's the word from which we get our english word scope what he is saying is zone in on in order to emulate those who have the same example that you have seen in us we need the fellowship One of the worst things that's happened because of this pandemic has been isolation. We need to be together. We can stand when we're anchored together in the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted last week, people change, things change, my hairline recedes, philosophies change, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In closing, maybe more than anyone, Paul understood how much harm even a little compromise could do in regard to doctrine and way of life. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul relates an encounter that he had with the great apostle Peter, and it was not a pleasant encounter. In fact, Paul had to boldly confront Peter to his face. Now, this wasn't just confronting anyone. He had to confront one of the original apostles and one who had been in the faith longer than he had been. What gave Paul the right to be so forceful with a man as esteemed as the apostle Peter? It was this. Peter was not acting in accordance with the truth of God's word. It would have been easy for Paul to have just let it go. But Paul, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, couldn't. And the issue was this. When Jews were not around, he describes in Galatians 2, Peter would eat with the Gentiles in fellowship with them. But then when certain Jews came uh, from Jerusalem in that part of the world and came into Peter's presence, he began to back off from the table and act as if he didn't know the Gentiles. Some people would say, oh, he's just a temporary failing. He was weak or whatever. But Paul directly confronted him, and he said, you're acting inconsistently. You're acting one way when, when the Jews aren't around and another way. Why did Paul do that? Because Peter's action would lead people to defer to Jews. It would lead people to begin to allow some type of legalism to seep into the Christian faith. And so Paul stood firm on the truth of the gospel. I wonder today, will you stand firm on the truth of the gospel? No matter what, Paul stood firm even 
in front of someone who had been in the Lord longer than he whose conduct was not consistent. Will you stand firm when, when this world that is changing begins to say, don't follow Christ? Will you stand firm when, when people around you will say, oh, you're just, you don't understand. You need to add this to faith in Christ. Will you stand firm? No matter what happens, we need to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at your word today, your command to people who have yet to believe is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, your command to those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is this, stand firm in the faith. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is secure in you. But we realize, Lord, the damage that can be done, not just to us, but to a group of believers, to the next generation, if we don't hold firm to the truths of the gospel. Lord, I pray for this church that we would heed your word, that, Father, we would understand the urgency of communicating the pure gospel of faith in Christ. Father, we just lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe today...